Welcome to the Control-Alt-Azure podcast. I'm Yusip. And I'm Tobias. Join us for a journey in the cloud. Hello again, and welcome back to another episode of Control-Alt-Azure. I am Tobias, and I'm here with Yusi again. What's up, my friend? Hey, Toby. So I am designing a home gym. And I think I mentioned perhaps two, three, four episodes ago that I'm in the process of building a house. And everything is still very much in the planning phase, like we're still waiting some of the designs from the architect, and we're uh, hunting after the permits and and getting financing in place, all that. But the most important thing is that I have space allocated from the floor plans for a home gym. And I think that's the most important bit here. So I went on a couple of websites for companies that sell you gym equipment. And they have this uh, web-based 3D design software where you put the floor plan in, a bit like what IKEA used to have. And then when you have the floor plan in place, it, they give you all the equipment that they sell to you. And they start with the water cooler and the sofa and TV. And then you actually get to the real stuff. So I started doing this design one evening and uh, I put the usual things that I figured that I would need in the home gym, uh, considering the space that I have. And I was all set. Then I figured, well, I actually need this this uh, floor mat, the, the sort of tiles that, that, that uh, support you a bit when you do your weightlifting. And one of these uh, brands, they have their own custom-made ones. So I, I put like 20 pieces of that. It's one meter by 1.5 meters, something like this. And then it says, okay, so your design is ready. Let, let us give you the 3D view and you can rotate the camera. And then it gives you the shopping list. And it's a relatively small room, not too many weights. And the total cost was $32,000. Nice. I'm like, I'm like, hold on. I was perhaps expecting $2,000, $3,000 even. So yeah, the equipment was $3,000, but the, the, the floor mat was $29,000. Wow. So it was $2,000 per piece, that one meter by 1.2 meters or so. So I figured I'll go to the local Home Depot and get the cheapest they have and I should be good. Or just go to the local gym and then ride it off for 25 years and you're also good. <laughs> yeah, that's that's one option as well. <laughs> so I'm, I'm still in the design phase and it might be that I come up with the idea that instead of doing a home gym, let, let, let me do this, my home yoga thing and I just need the yoga mat and I'm good. All right, fair enough. So on my side, um, remember in the last episode, I said that I stopped drinking coffee. Um, I'm still there. I'm still not drinking coffee, but it appears that now I want to eat more cinnamon buns. And this is a thing in Sweden. So, you know, why not? So, you know, I, I've kind of stopped uh, coffee for various reasons. And now I'm kind of craving something else in its place. So I started to, to make my own tea. So I make green tea from herbs I'm growing myself in the house. And that's actually pretty good. It doesn't even come close to a really good cappuccino in the morning. Uh, you know, let's be honest, a really good homemade cappuccino from your high-end coffee machine. Mm, that's some good stuff. Uh, but 
you know, homegrown herbs going into your tea, it's a good second place. So I'm, I'm happy with that for now, but I am contemplating whether or not I should try to ease into uh, a couple of cups of coffee per day again, but maybe then with a bit more control over the consumption. So I don't have my 10 or 11 cups of coffee, but maybe two might be better. Sounds like a good plan. And for me, the trick to cutting down a bit on coffee was to use smaller cups. And the cups that I normally use, it's it's the one I'm using now for tea. This is about three deciliters. I have no idea how much that is in US units, but let's let's say it's 27 ounce or five quarts or whatever the units are. So anyway, this is a fairly big cup for tea and coffee. So what I normally do now with coffee, I use cups that are half of this size. And that way I still get my cup of coffee, but I get half of that amount of coffee I should be getting. Yeah, I, I kind of did that as well. And I found this really nice porcelain set with, with two really cool cups that are like in between an espresso cup and a small coffee cup. So it's even smaller than a, a normal coffee coffee cup. But I just ended up going to the coffee machine three times as much. Yeah, So course. I mean, if, <laughs> you know, uh, so I just stopped. And then let's see when I pick it up. Alrighty. So today's topic is a few thoughts on event-based automation with Azure. So let's let's start with the, with the basic question. What is event-based automation or event-based solutions? So that's a that's a great question. And that I mean it's such a wide span, so it can really mean anything. And you can do things in a lot of ways. And a couple of things we wanted to talk about today is like repetitive tasks. And we did talk about some of these things in the past, um, like automating your workflows. And this is common for improving productivity and agility, and you can then focus on other tasks. So things that happen a lot or things that you need to automate are a very good uh, fit for something that is event-based. You can kind of trigger things. So for me, mostly I have designed Azure functions for these types of scenarios. Uh, because they offer a robust, reliable serverless option, so you don't have to maintain or upgrade your, your servers or server parks. Um, so that's, I would say that's the gist of it. Whenever you need uh, something to be automated on some kind of event, that event can be some kind of signal. We'll, I guess we'll, we'll get to that in different types of signals. Right. Uh, one of the things that I use with event-based solutions is I often utilize logic apps and or Azure functions and then if something is found out during those workflows, or if I trigger something, let's say from an IoT device, then through an event, I react to that and do something. And I, I feel this is a great way to have a loosely coupled solution that later allows me to replace bits and pieces, depending on if my needs change or if a new sort of service becomes available that I feel is better than the one I had been using. Makes sense. So when you build event-based automation, uh, what's, what's sort of the, the common patterns or, or what's, what's, what's the, the playbook you mentally open when you start building a solution that, okay, let's see from the different options, what should we do? So normally I don't start with the tech first, uh, but in this case, if we have already come as far as knowing that we need an event-based automation, um, I usually go uh, by building these in Azure functions. So that's the tech uh, because the serverless architecture kind of allows easy tailoring to the business needs 
And at this point, you already probably know the business requirements, and then you don't need the additional infrastructure. So some common patterns for event-based automation can be webhooks. And I think most people are familiar with webhooks in one way or the other. When something happens, shoot out a webhook. And that webhook can post a message to Teams or to Slack, for example. Or uh, you might be familiar with Azure Security Center and container registries. There was a vulnerability scanning capability inside of Security Center. And when you found something, you could uh, subscribe to webhooks. So you could see that all right, now we found something, now I need to kind of subscribe to that. Um, so it's third-party integrations, uh, command line integrations, if you want that, responding to app-specific external events, if you will. Um, and a, another example could be a power app or any other system capable of sending a webhook. Um, so one use case, which is very common, is start a new automation when something failed. So for example, you might have a production workload system that has a lot of moving parts. And somewhere along the lines in your uh, pipeline, something happened. And you might not want to stop the entire system. You might not want to take in a specific action, but you want to know about it. You can send a webhook to whatever system you want. Um, another um, simple use case could be send a notification or an alert when something finished like a scan or analysis of a particular uh, long running task. I think we talked about background tasks in another episode in the past. So when you have something running on the back end, perhaps you have a web portal or a web UI web app that you developed and the user does something and whatever they requested might take two minutes, right? They don't want to hang out there to find out when the results come in, but instead you can send off an event and you, your function picks this up and, and take care of it. When it's done, it can send a webhook, either back to the uh, to the user, for example, with then you would probably use Zignoir or something like that, or to another system like your mobile phone or uh, Slack or Teams again. So you can kind of get um, notifications when things happen. There's another very common thing that I use a lot, which is resource events in Azure. So when something in Azure is created or updated, or delete it, or some kind of event happens with my Azure resources, I might want to know about it. I don't want to know about everything, you know, and I also have the audit log. But for me to automate this and get this into my own compliance tools and, and kind of into my own toolbox, um, it's really cool to be able to subscribe to these events. So another use case here is uh, notify specific teams like the DevOps or DevSecOps team when there's uh, a new or a deleted resource in a specific region or of a specific type or you know, tag with a specific tag. So in my case, I have many subscriptions, um, you know, a, a lot of them because we have production workloads and dev workloads and we separate things by subscriptions and by directories. And yeah, we have a lot of data in a lot of places and a lot of services. It's gonna be really hard for me to keep a track on each and every one of those. So what I did is I kind of subscribed to the events instead, and I go to get a notification, which then my Azure function picks up, then I can do whatever I want with it, whether that is a notification toast on Teams saying someone deleted a production resource in this subscription um, relating to this service or solution or microservice or whatever I have running. And that's insights that I might need to get immediately because if that was a mistake or that was not supposed to happen, we need to take action and we need to take that now. So that's just a, a different angle. So another use case, and I think I read this in the Microsoft docs where they 
also say that automatically you can grant the correct role-based access control uh, permission or access to new resources based on what types and tags and location and more that fits your scenario. So people can create their own resources. And if it is this type of resource in that region with this tag, then the entire DevSecOps team need to have contribute permissions on that resource group, including all the resources. Great. Then you can kind of automate that as well. Um, so, so that's a lot of options here. So one was the resource events in Azure. And I haven't really used those that much. And, and when I'm listening to this, I'm figuring all sorts of different options I could actually utilize here. And the webhooks was the other one. And that's, for me, that's often been the sort of go-to loose integration point if I'm working, let's say, building a solution on Azure, but then there's this external third-party thing that I don't know that well. I have a look, oh, there's a webhook thing. So let's let's see if I could utilize that in, in a more lightweight approach to then do most of the logic elsewhere that I know is, more, is perhaps more robust or I have more... Uh, resources to work on as opposed to a third-party thing where we often just need this trigger to do something and then we actually know what we need to do. Yeah, yeah, perfectly valid. And uh, webhooks are, are usually what I start with if the system supports it because a lot of systems like Teams, like Slack and wherever I want to get my notifications, they have the capability just built in. You get, a, get an endpoint, you copy that into your application and say, send a notification here whenever something happens, whatever that is. And that's it. Alrighty. So how do you, how do you think about this uh, slightly more modern approach? And I think Microsoft used to call this bots, and then it sort of evolved into chat ops. And I spent quite a bit of time with, with the Azure bot framework when it initially came out. And it sort of evolved into two different products. There was Bot Framework, and then I think it was called the Bot Builder. And the Bot Builder was sort of a separate portal where you would build these fairly simple bots that often had pre-programmed responses and actions. So somebody could say, how do I get uh, to, to uh, travel to this and this location, who gets me the flight tickets? And it would look up based on the keywords and say, well, actually you need to go to this address to do it. And now I'm seeing more talk about chat ops. And my understanding is, and I openly admit, I haven't been following up on this too closely lately, is that the solution for chat ops is either Azure Bot Framework, if you want to build something from scratch, meaning open visual studio and actually build something or then use power platforms power virtual agent to build your own bots and that's sort of an evolved version of the bot builder have you used yep. either one of these so i've i've used the azure bot framework a lot i did build now i've granted this is more than a year ago probably possibly two years ago that i built a, a real robust bot um, I did that for Teams and Slack and Skype and yeah, different integration points. And it was kind of a, a bot that could provide you insights that you know employees asked for. So I have used that. And you touch here on, on a topic called chat ops. And this is also a fairly new term to me. But I realized that a lot of organizations are now relying on integrating chat bots into their 
organization workflows and when visitors come to their website and even for internal employees. So chat ops, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty cool term, but any, anything is ops today, really. So a use case here that I read on the Microsoft website is where they explained a scenario, for example, when, when an incident happened, you can have an incident response and uh, then the bot automatically documents what was happening and or uh, being talked about during that time and can log events and can log things and kind of bundle that up. And when the incident is done or ongoing, it can then react and do different things. So the, the reason we're talking about the bot framework here is exactly this use case could be then relevant to taking action with an event-based solution. So something happens in this chat, someone goes in and say, hey, the system is down or someone goes in and say, I don't know how to do this. Can you help me immediately? Because we're stuck or we're burning our SLA, whatever it is, you know, they're going into the chat. Then the, the chat can escalate that and send an event off. Then your system, whatever that is, takes care of that and, and takes additional action. And this is a way to decouple the logic in the bot with critical events that may happen that you might need to deal with different ways. Because ideally, you know, when I build bots, uh, I, I think of them as microservices in the sense that the logic of the bot is to support whoever comes there to chat with it, you know? But if there's something that needs to be done, external systems that you need to communicate with, I don't want to integrate the logic of the external system into the bot. I just want to send a signal saying, this is what you need to look at, or this is happening. And then the external system can be separately maintained. Granted, I have not worked a lot with Power Virtual Agents. Um, so th this is definitely something I'm going to look at. Um, because I, I like the simplicity when I see that. I, I watched a demo video that a while back, and I, I like the simplicity. It's not very complex, at, at least not to build the, the most basic things. Uh, and I see a lot of use cases for that, and especially internally in big organizations where you have a lot of things going on. Finding the right resources, finding the right people, and yeah, getting to, for example, when you're new in an organization and you need an onboarding, then you can have this kind of, bot or, or a virtual assistant or a virtual agent next to you, guiding you through uh, you know, the first few weeks of your, your work to find all the resources. That might be a great idea. So I, I really like that. But, but I think that's the limit of my experience with, with this type of um, chat bots. But, but the general gist, I guess, here is if you have conversations in chat bots and you need to handle them uh, or need to take action on something, you can send events or you can send signals from that bot. And then you handle that independently in whatever, if it's an Azure function or whatever. So you don't have to kind of dilute or pollute the logic of your bot. Yes, exactly. Uh, I recall also from Ignite this year that they uh, published a couple of updates to Power Virtual Agents and ChatOps. And one other update that I felt was interesting is that Azure Cognitive Services now has support for Finnish and Swedish as well. So obviously it works on English and all the major languages, but it's nice now seeing these smaller language areas are starting to get native support that we can then employ if you're, uh, if you're building an event-based solution, we could now employ Power Virtual Agents and then leverage Cognitive Services to perhaps serve a user in their native language, not expecting that everybody wants to communicate in English. Yeah, that's actually a, an interesting idea. I did not know that Swedish was supported. I might try to, to uh, translate uh, one of my blog posts to see if that comes off um, you know, great in Swedish. I don't have high expectations, 
um, given what I've seen in machine translations. But who knows if, if you do a translation and then you run like cognitive services and text analytics on it, it would be interesting to see the outcome and compare what is the, uh, the consensus of analyzing the text in English and then in Swedish after it's been translated to see if, if it match. Yeah, I'll do the same in Finnish at some point. So we had a look at the webhooks, the resource events in Azure and chat ops and Power Virtual Agent. Anything else in your uh, playbook that you look into when you need to find these common patterns for event-based automation? Yeah, a super common type of event is an HTTP trigger. So you can trigger it any way you want, pretty much. So whatever system you have and whatever yeah, type of services you subscribe to and, and however your workflow looks, it is often easy to send an HTTP request. So if, if your Azure function in this case can accept an HTTP trigger, you can super easily uh, trigger new events to happen based on whatever comes in that you decide should come in. So whether that is from a logic app or if that's from event grid or if that is from uh, your custom web app or mobile app or you know from Teams, it doesn't matter. It's super easy to trigger uh, an HTTP trigger. And then there's like any type of external system orchestration or integrate with external systems based on events outside of your app, for example, using logic apps. And logic app connectors can then integrate with many third-party services um, as well as the Microsoft services like Microsoft 365. That's a great approach, I think, when we don't kind of want to build everything ground up, but instead use the glue and that Azure offers between services, uh, both their own services and third-party services. So instead of kind of reinventing everything, we can also use the connectors. So you can kind of orchestrate these things and the events uh, with external and third-party systems based on your custom logic or these connectors that is already there that you can make use of. So just a, a couple of things to uh, keep in mind uh, before um, kind of jumping into the code if you just want to code something or build something take a step back and again analyze what it is you want to achieve and see if there's something already there because logic app can do a lot of the things you you usually do in an azure function uh, but you might not be aware of it one of the things that i really love now with logic apps is that also as part of an ignite update and i think we covered this in one of the earlier episodes is that logic apps is now closer to Azure functions that if you're building a logic app to perhaps run your orchestration or to manage some sort of a backend process, then you can leverage Azure functions more easily. Or as you said, if you have a third party service, let's say it's SAP or uh, SQL server in on premises, it's super easy to build those connections and see how it's going to work end to end. And if you then need to replace something, it's easy to take that one building block away and then replace that with something that you want to build or perhaps somebody else is providing for you. And the yep. HTTP triggers, uh, I feel often that IT pros and perhaps devs as well, they sort of seek this this easiest and, and and most most easily understandable solution when they have multiple projects tight schedules and just something needs to be done and the http trigger is often the easiest one just give me the link and let me schedule something that calls this every five minutes and now when we're talking about event-based solutions i feel that there's still a place 
to employ the HTTP triggers, even if there's more modern and more advanced options, but sometimes the simple ones are, are just great enough for the need that you have. Yeah, definitely. So anything else we need to add uh, on event-based automation? Yeah, I, I think, so what we talked about is different types of events and, and patterns like webhooks and resources from events in Azure, chat ops and uh, HTTP triggers and stuff like that. Um, but then what about the architecture? You, know, you have common patterns and scenarios and they can vary a lot. Um, but the architecture is of course also important. And that's when we come to choosing the right tech for, for the job because a, a, a webhook can really be done in multiple ways, just as many of these things can. So I'm, I'm going to try to run that through short because we could probably talk for many hours about the options here. I will try to digest this into the most common options that I've seen and, and how people kind of embrace these things. And number one is Azure Functions. That's part of the ar architecture by default uh, because this is event-based by default serverless computing. So keep the logic simple, idempotent and stateless. And what that means is stateless, and as quoted by uh, the Microsoft documentation for best practices for functions is, functions should be stateless and idempotent if possible. Associate any required state information with your data. For example, an order being processed uh, would likely have an associated state member and a function could process an order based on that state while the function itself remains stateless, right? And for someone who's new to that might think this is gibberish, if you work with stateful applications versus stateless, this is super important. Every function execution should be designed stateless. So you don't expect a certain state to exist. Whatever comes into your function contains the data it needs to execute and that's it. And then the fact that it should be idempotent or to embrace idempotency, maybe that's, <laughs> I don't know what the exact English uh, uh, word is for that, but idempotent functions are recommended with, for example, timer triggers. Uh, so if you have something that is scheduled and that must run once per day, then write it so it can run anytime during that day with the same result, right? So if it runs 12 o'clock or 10 o'clock, doesn't matter. You should have the same result coming out of it. And the function can exit when there's no work for a particular day. Um, and then if a previous run failed to complete, the next one should pick up things where it left off. So all of these things are important when you kind of design these systems. This is you know, top of my, my mind for Azure functions, but whatever technology you choose to kind of host the, the event-based logic in, um, these are things to consider, especially if you write that code your, yourself. While um, you were going through this, I went to Google Translate. I needed to check up what idempotent is in Finnish, my native language. Uh -oh. and, and, and the translation is great. Idempotent in English equals idempotenti. In Finnish, <laughs> so not oh, helping. Man, I need to learn Finnish. It sounds so easy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. Another option to uh, plug into your architecture is logic apps. We touched on that. We've also had entire episodes dedicated to logic apps. Um, and we use these to kind of perform simpler tasks. We integrate with the logic apps connector that I mentioned before. Uh, so we can quickly and easily integrate to other systems with very low effort. And this is a golden, like low code, no code type of solution that comes with even a, a pretty good visual designer now with the upgrade. Um, 
I think this was in episode six, Reflections on Astrologic Apps or something like that, that we talked about that. So that's almost a year ago right now, um, but still very valid. The only thing that changed since then is I think the, the Logic Apps uh, UI has been upgraded. So the designer is a lot better. Uh, so you have functions, you have Logic Apps. Uh, another thing to plug into the architecture is Event Grid. And the reason I wanna make people aware of Event Grid is uh, some people I talk to have never heard of it or only seen it as an icon on your service. There's something called the event grid, but nobody uses it. So the event grid, um, like the long story short, many services in Azure have a built-in support for the Azure event grid. And this makes it ideal for subscribing to events, uh, for example, if your workloads are Azure-based. Uh, so you can also use the custom topics, which are essentially custom events. So you don't have to use events that are built into the services. You can use uh, your own custom events. And with the built-in subscription to these um, event grid events, we can automate and take action when various events occur across all the services we have in, in Azure. Uh, and I, as an example, I've wrote about this uh, recently where an event happens in my Azure Key Vault. Uh, certificate keys or secrets have been created, updated, or deleted or if they're about to expire, or if they have expired, then I can trigger an event and then I can take action. So again, back to what I mentioned in the start of this episode, maybe you have your monitoring system or you need to get alerts for, for some things. And at scale, when I have maybe 50 subscriptions to manage, you know, I, there might be a lot of things I need to look into spread out. Then I can set something like that up into build this into my solutions and services and have a central place where I can monitor it. So that's pretty nifty. Um, and then of course, the super useful Azure Monitor where we can get alerts from Azure Monitor and these are essential part of our event-based workflow. So critical events and conditions in the resources and applications can be highlighted and we can then take action. So it's not always that you build your own custom application and an event inside of that triggers something, but this is also events based on whatever happens in Azure Monitor. Uh, so we have Azure Monitor action groups and they can easily integrate with Azure Functions. And a common use case that I keep reading about um, is that I, uh, and that I also have implemented in my solutions is um, monitor for error conditions. So you use Azure Monitor and you try to find errors or faults, for example, throttling on a service, and then you can take action or send an alert immediately. And for me, sending this as an email is a no-go because I've done that. And with the amount of things I have to manage and the amount of things I'm trying to overlook, I ended up with more than 10,000 emails per week. And this is obviously alert fatigue. And there's no way I'm gonna read any single email coming into that uh, inbox. So instead I, I create and subscribe to events. And then these events, I can classify them, put categories on them. And whatever system I throw them into, I can filter, I can based on, on severity and criticality and things I cannot really do in my email. Um, so yeah, those are like common things you can plug into your architecture. Um, yeah, that was a, a lot. I have a lot of things on my mind related to this, but I'm trying to digest it down into a comprehensible way for, for the, like the key points and key services to use if you're starting with an event-based system. This is the sort of topic that, that would require that we sit down in a quiet classroom, everybody gathers around and you get on the stage and you really go through this and we don't really need to take time. We know that we have the whole weekend and we can just spend as much time on this as, as needed. The 
event grid, uh, for me, it's often something that is a bit transparent. As an example, uh, if I use Azure IoT Hub and I'm getting messages in from my IoT devices, I might subscribe to some events that if this and this happens, then let's call Logic Apps. And if this and this happens, let's call Azure Functions and so on. And Event Grid is giving me the magic in there, but I'm, I'm not specifically going to Event Grid to do this, but I'm simply leveraging those capabilities in different services. So definitely I would, I would say that Logic Apps and Azure Functions are the key building blocks here. And Event Grid is kind of the glue in between to, to bring everything together to those events. Yeah, definitely. So that was a lot on this. Uh, so we often mention cost and or pricing, and perhaps there's no point now in going through what Azure Functions or Logic Apps cost, because it really depends on what you're planning on building, how much are you using those, and in what sort of scenarios. So Azure Pricing Calculator, of course, is a great starting point. And often if somebody reaches out to me, and this happens quite often through LinkedIn uh, private messages, somebody pings me and says, hey, you see, I have a problem with this. Uh, how should I fix this problem? And I might reply, well, have you looked into this? And then sort of the question starts to evolve. Well, actually we have this and this in place as well. Oh, in that case, the, the question is something else. And then it sort of evolves from there over perhaps 20 messages. And then you realize, well, now I know what the problem is. And now it's impossible to give you a clear answer without really spending a lot of time on this. Yeah. And I feel the cost pricing thing here is the same that you can say it costs X, but depending what you do, the X might be something else. Yeah, and, and that's the case. And um, yeah, you know, use, use your best judgment when you design any type of architecture, any type of service or system. When it comes to event-based systems, and I, I process hundreds of millions of events, and then my system kind of classify them depending on what the events are. Uh, so I only get, you know, the most important things uh, that I need to take action on. And that doesn't cost much. If I run this in, in an Azure function, I, I'm running on uh, a P1v2 plan, I believe. Um, so I can have my networking and firewalls and all this set up as well. And, and that's the price I pay. And, you know, some storage services, some key vault stuff. Um, but yeah, the, the costs are negligible. Um, if you design them, you know, properly. But if you then start, which is perhaps my final tip, if you start designing event-based systems and you attach data to your events, ensure that you only attach the data that is really, really necessary. Otherwise, we might see the same thing that I saw with log analytics when I used that as a logging component in some of my solutions. Then I took as much data as I could to plug into the logging message and send to log analytics because I really needed all the data to understand what was happening. That quickly became an escalating cost because that data has a retention period and I had configured retention for a year. And the data ingestion was a lot. Same thing here. If you send a, a lot of data and you send a lot of big data and you save that data or process that data, and then you keep retention on the data, you need to think about that when you design it. So you don't send a one megabyte JSON blob uh, containing only 5% of what you need. Then you only you should design it so you only send those 5%. Uh, but yeah, again, back to the consultant answer, it depends. 
Yes, it always depends. All righty, this was fun. Thank you for joining uh, when we discussed a few thoughts on event-based automation with Azure. And until next time. See you then. Thank you for tuning in to the Control-Alt-Azure podcast. Find out more and read the show notes on controlaltazure.com. Stay tuned.